Good job, church. You sound awesome this morning. Great job, choir. Let me uh, take a moment before we look at our passage of Scripture today to remind you that tonight we have our choir performing their top ten uh, performance of ten favorite songs that they've sung this last year. And so we want to invite you to come be a part of that. It's going to be a great time. Uh, I secretly hope, I do not know what the top ten is, but I've got a couple I'm hoping are in there. Uh, specifically, Living Hope. I hope that one's in there. Oh, I didn't make it, David. Oh, man, what a great song. So, um, But yeah, we want you to come out tonight for our evening worship service and hear our choir performance. is going to be great. Also, um, we are going to be involved in a mission project next week, and we've been asking you guys over the last few weeks to help us out by gathering school supplies. We have a partnership with Austinville Elementary School and are privileged to be able to uh, provide school supplies for the teachers and the students that are going to be there. Next Sunday after church, we will go and eat lunch and at our respective places and then gather back up those who can to help us pass out those school supplies at Austinville Elementary School. And then that evening, we will have a group that will be praying both at Austinville Elementary and also at Julian Harris. And so we want you to be a, help us be involved with that. Just want to turn next Sunday afternoon into an opportunity just to serve our schools and pray over our schools and serve the students in those schools. We still need a number of school supplies, so if you haven't had an opportunity to go get anything and bring it, please do so. Uh, there are a number of things that you'll see out there. There's a list out there. I know we need lots of Clorox wipes. If you can bring some of those, that would be great. Also, some folders. Just about anything you bring will be added to the mix. And so if you haven't had an opportunity to go get some school supplies, you can do so this afternoon. You can do so, bring those back tonight when you come to church or sometime first of the week so that we can get those over there. We'd appreciate that very much. Before we look at our topic today on the parables of Jesus, I wanted to tell you about a story I heard once about a young, fresh pastor out of seminary by the name of Brother Henry. He is a green pastor who had just graduated from seminary, called to his first church, and was called on by the local funeral home to conduct a, a graveside burial for a pauper's service. A, a man, a destitute man, who had died without any family, any friends whatsoever, and they called this young pastor, asked him to come and and perform this message. Not knowing where the cemetery was, being new to the community, he made his way out there, but unfortunately, he didn't have GPS at the time. <coughs> Got lost, made several wrong turns. Eventually, finding the cemetery, arriving about an hour late, he found the hearse was nowhere in sight. He found the open hole with the spade next to it and a number of workmen who were sitting underneath a shade tree eating lunch. Everyone else was gone. Wanting to do a good job and wanting to finish the job that he had come, Brother Henry went to the open grave and found that the vault lid had already been put in place. Feeling guilty because of his lateness, he decided to preach an impassioned and lengthy service, sending the deceased man to the great beyond with considerable style. When he finished, he began to make his way back to the car, and as he did, he overheard one of the workmen sitting under the shade tree talking to the other one who said, you know what, I've been putting in septic tanks for 25 years and I ain't never seen anything like that before. Hopefully my words today will be much more effective than young brother Henry's were. If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Today we are in the ninth of our parables in our series through the parables of Jesus. We've been looking at the parables throughout the summer. We'll be finishing these up in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, and as we look at today's scripture, before we read it, I want to ask you a question. And this is a, this is a responsive question, so I'm expecting a response from you, okay? Um, the question is this, do you believe that Jesus Christ physically died on the cross and rose again on the third day and that his resurrection validates the fact that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that? Good, that's awesome. That's a good answer. It's an important question. It's very important for us to, to understand what the gospel is and what the gospel says about who Jesus Christ is. And so if you believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, and if you believe that He has promised that one day He is going to return bodily to this earth to gather His church from every corner of this globe and to take them to an eternal home to live with Him forever... If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross, that He rose again, and that one day He is coming back, then what are you currently doing to prepare for His inevitable and eventual return? If you really believe that, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I, there are millions of people that acknowledge that they believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, rose again on the third day. Millions of people claim that they believe that. James says, you believe that there is one God, that's good. Even the demons believe that. And so it's, you got to have more than a demon kind of faith. you got to have something that's much deeper than that. And the reality of it is, is that if Jesus died on the cross and rose again, meaning that He is the Son of God, and if He's ascended to heaven and He's coming back one day as He promised, then the most important question that you and I can face because of that is, what are we doing to prepare for His inevitable and eventual return? That's the point of the parable that Jesus is talking about today. That's what he was doing as he began to prepare his disciples for not only his, his soon coming departure, but his eventual return. And so let's read the parable in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept, but at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other five virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There's a lot in this parable that we need to unpack because while Jesus told this story in a specific context to a specific group of people, there was a lot in this story that they would be familiar with that we have to kind of unpack a little bit. Like what's going on with this marriage feast and 
why are there lamps and all those kinds of things. And we're going to look at that in just a second. We've looked at many different types of parables so far in this series. We've seen that Jesus used parables to teach different spiritual topics on many different occasions. Sometimes he used parables to convey spiritual truths to a large gathered crowd like the parable of the soils. Sometimes he used parables to speak to the spiritually proud like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Sometimes he used parables to teach just his disciples, kind of a smaller group like the parable of the unmerciful servant that we looked at a few weeks ago. Today's parable is a, is a parable that he used to teach his disciples and some of those who were gathered around about the future kingdom of God. The, the Bible classifies this as a kingdom parable because Jesus says in verse 1, the kingdom of God will be like. And so Jesus is trying to convey to his hearers something about God's kingdom. He wants us to understand what God's kingdom will be like. And in this particular case, it's also what we call an eschatological parable. What we mean by that, that's a theological word that means future. It means something that's going to be a future event that will happen specifically when Jesus returns. As David said a second ago, he's, he's telling them about a future return when he will come again. And so at this particular time when Jesus tells this parable, this occurs during the last week of his life in the Feast of the Passover literally just a couple of days before he goes to the cross to die. Jesus, knowing the events that were about to take place, wants to take this last week to prepare his disciples not only for his death, but his eventual departure. And so he gives them teachings throughout Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 about the signs of his return and about what we should be doing to prepare for the second coming. Lots of people are interested in the second coming. Lots of people want to know, when is Jesus coming back? What are those signs going to be? Jesus gives a lot of those to us in these verses. But prior to this parable, Jesus had warned His disciples that nobody knows the day or the hour of His return. And to illustrate that, He tells this story to help us to prepare for His return. Jesus says that the future kingdom of God is like ten virgins who were preparing to go out and meet the bridegroom. Well, who are these virgins? What, are they, who, what do they represent? What's going on with this bridegroom and this marriage? Five of these virgins are, are characterized as wise. Five of them were characterized as, as foolish. So what characterizes them that way? To begin with, let's understand a little bit about Jewish wedding customs. Without going into a great deal of detail, Jewish wedding customs in the first century consisted of three parts. In our day and time, usually what happens is man and a woman decide that they love each other, that they want to get married. Man proposes to the young lady, she accepts, and then we start all the social media campaign. We announce it on social media that we got engaged and get 576 likes on our post, and then eventually we put out a little card that we send out to a whole bunch of people to mark the date, and then we send out wedding invitations and all of, all of that stuff. In Jesus' day, it was somewhat similar, but a little bit different. In Jesus' day, there were three parts to a, to a marriage or to a wedding. The first part was the engagement process where a man and a woman would enter into a contract to marry. Many times in 
the first century, these marriages were arranged between, between families. The families would arrange for these, these young men and women to marry, and there would be a time in which the, the young man and the young woman would agree to marry one another, and they would enter into a verbal contract, a verbal agreement to marry. That would be followed immediately by the betrothal period, in which the bride and the groom would exchange vows before family and friends, and in doing so, this would bind them to one another in a covenant of marriage. This began what was known as the betrothal. At this particular point, the couple was considered married and could not be separated other than by divorce. But they didn't live together yet. You'll remember in the story of Mary and Joseph that the Bible says that Joseph was betrothed to a young woman named Mary. In other words, they had come to a point where they had been engaged, they had come together, they had spoken vows to one another to commit to one another as husband and wife, but they were not yet living together. They had not yet consummated the marriage. Why? Because after the betrothal period, the young man would usually have to go and make preparations for his new bride. He would go and establish a trade. He would, he would build a home. He would make all the preparations necessary to take his young bride, and then she would fully and completely become his wife. At that point, the, the wedding would enter into the third stage, which was the wedding feast or the wedding ceremony. This is what's happening in this particular part of the parable. And as preparation for the wedding ceremony, the, the groom would usually go and finish those final preparations, sometimes meeting with the bride's family to, to make those final preparations, to pay a dowry, something like that. Everybody knew that the feast was about to take place, that it had been announced that the groom was coming to get his bride. At this particular parable, for some reason, the groom is delayed. It doesn't happen quite yet. And these ten women were... were classified as virgins, but what they really are are bridesmaids. That's what we would call them today. They were, these were ten young ladies who were given the responsibility of accompanying the bride to meet the bridegroom. And so they go and they, they meet with the, the bride and they're, they're busy making all the final preparations and, 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 and that process, the groom's coming was delayed. These, these Ten virgins represent people who have made an outward profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The bridegroom in this story is Jesus. And the ten virgins are people who, who profess to know Him and are preparing for His return. So what do their lamps represent? Well, their lamps are outward identity with the church. These lamps were actually first century torches, some clubs and sticks made of rags that had been dipped in oil. And because of that, they would continually need to be trimmed. They would continually need to have more oil applied to them to keep them burning. And so the virgins represent those who profess to know Jesus, to have a relationship with Him, and their lamps represent their outward identity with the church. So how do they apply to us today? Well... Jesus tells us that there were ten of them and that they all professed some sort of connection to the bridegroom. We see in verse um, 11 that they call him Lord. At the end of the day when they come the, the, to, to meet him, they say, Lord, Lord, open to us, indicating that they claim to know him. All ten of them go out to wait on the bridegroom and all of them bring their torches, their identity, their, their, their identity with the bridegroom and their invitation to the party. 
But only half of them had actually made the proper preparations by bringing oil with them. The oil represents their personal preparation. It's representative of an inward profession of faith in Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because the coming of the groom took longer than expected and he was delayed, they all became distracted and drowsy and weary. And so when it was announced suddenly that the groom was coming, five of them, because they had made the proper preparations, were prepared for his coming, but the other five had not. And so consequently they weren't ready and their lamps went out. They couldn't borrow oil from the others, and so they had in haste to try to go and find oil to prepare their lamps, but they were too late. The bridegroom had come, and they were shut out from the feast. From these these truths, we can easily interpret the primary message that Jesus is trying to convey to us here. What Jesus is trying to tell us is He's trying to tell us about His inevitable return. Jesus has just spent time promising His disciples that He is coming back. He has just said to them in verses 36 through through 51 of chapter 24 that no one knows the day or the hour of His return. And when Jesus comes back, it will not be as a meek lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world, but when He comes back, He will come back as the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. When Jesus comes back, His return will be sudden and without prior warning. There will be no early warning detection system that will go off that will announce that Jesus is coming. And in the meantime, there are many here and now who profess faith in Jesus. There are many here who identify themselves as Christians and say that they believe in Jesus Christ. But according to this parable, they have not made the proper spiritual preparation by fully trusting in Jesus and the gospel. They've only attached themselves to Jesus through outward religious performance. They've attached themselves to Jesus for personal purposes, but they've never truly trusted in Him by faith. And so what's going to happen is that when Christ returns, they will find themselves with an impressive religious resume, but shut out of the kingdom of God. As one person said years ago, they may be near to the cross, but they are far from the Christ. Jesus' main point in this parable is simply this. Because you do not know when the Lord Jesus will return, you must personally make the proper spiritual preparations now. The whole point of the parable is designed to help us to understand, as Jesus says at the end, you know neither the day nor the hour. So because you do not know the day or the hour when the Lord Jesus will return, if you believe that He died on the cross and you believe that He rose from the dead, thereby proving that He is the Son of God, if you believe that according to His Word He will one day return, then you must make the proper personal preparations for His return now. You cannot wait. If you were ever in the Boy Scouts, any of y'all here were in the Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts? I was in the Cub Scouts when I was a a young boy. And you remember the, the Boy Scout motto. What is the Boy Scout motto? Be what? Be prepared. Proper preparations in life make all the difference. For instance, we all know that you need an emergency weather plan before the storm hits, not after. I remember several years ago on the April tornadoes, when all those tornadoes hit 
there was one that had, we had just moved into a home about a year and a half before in Alexander City, and we got a warning that there was a tornado that was coming across Lake Martin in Tallapoosa County. And we had really not made a lot of preparations for a tornado. And, and because of what many of you will remember because of what was happening that day, we saw the weather that was going all across the state and the crazy things that were kind of happening. And I just happened to run out to the shed and grab like a couple of batting helmets and a bicycle helmet and brought them inside. And when we got the warning about 11 o'clock at night that, that a tornado was coming, we gathered all of our kids, ran into the closet, shoved helmets on their head and shut the door and prayed that a tornado didn't hit our house. And learned that you must make the proper preparations for a weather disaster before the storm hits and not after. And while many people understand the importance of preparation when it comes to their jobs or their homes or their retirement or their favorite sports teams, the vast majority of people do not take that same attitude when it comes to matters of spiritual and eternal importance. The vast majority of people in this world would tell you that a proper preparation makes all the difference between a championship team and a team with a losing record. And they will acknowledge that. But they will not take that very same principle into their own personal life when it comes to preparing for the inevitable return of Jesus Christ. Either you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by saying you believe that, you believe that He is who he says he is and is going to do what he says he is going to do and that he's going to come back, or you don't believe that. And if you believe that, then you sincerely need to do everything you can to prepare. And yet for many of us, we, we put matters of spiritual and eternal importance off until later. We live our lives constantly immersed in the pursuit of the immediate, the temporal, and the physical. We have jobs to do, families to raise, hobbies to pursue. But we need to remember that we are not just physical creatures that exist in a physical world. We are spiritual beings created in the image of God, created with an eternal soul that will live on long after everything else in this world is gone. The Bible tells us that God has created us not only for this world, but for an eternal one as well. And the Bible declares that we have sinned and departed from God and His holy ways. Because of that, the penalty for our sin is death and separation from Him. The Bible declares that God is a holy God who, who cannot allow sin or sinful beings into His presence. And so therefore, we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. The sin that we've committed must be atoned for. And so in His in His grace, God sends His Son, Jesus, to this world to, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die on the cross in our place. Jesus Christ came to be King over this world and to establish His soon coming kingdom. He died on the cross a death that would satisfy the wrath of God against our sins. And He rose from the dead to defeat death in the grave, and he offers free and total forgiveness to any and everyone who would repent of their sin and trust in him by faith to save them. This is the gospel. This is the good news of redemption. This is the good news that eclipses all other good news. And this is the message that must be believed and embraced here and now. 
But the sad reality, according to this parable that Jesus tells, is that many people, including some sitting in this place today, will hear that very same news that I just proclaimed to you and believe it functionally in their head, but never trust in it by faith. That there are millions and millions and millions of people who have heard the gospel and verbally acknowledge that they believe it in their head, but they've never trusted in it by faith. And consequently, they will falsely believe that they are prepared for eternity because they have accepted the right religious facts and attempted to be good religious people. And many of those people are sitting in churches like this this morning. And if you are, I invite you to hear the warning of Jesus. In which he says, because you do not know when the Lord will return, you must personally make the proper spiritual preparations now. You cannot continue to wait until later to trust Jesus. Because one day there will be no later. One day there will be no more time. One day the Lord Jesus will come. And the Bible tells us that He will come suddenly, without warning. And at that point in time, everyone who has trusted in Him as Lord and Savior will be separated from everyone who has not. Let me give you three personal takeaways that I see from this passage. If this is true, if, if, if we do not know when the Lord Jesus is going to return, and because of that we need to make the proper spiritual preparations now, then what I see from this text, He tells us three truths that accentuate this fact that we need to know. Number one, eternal life in Christ is not transferable. Therefore, it must be personally exercised by faith. Eternal life in Christ is not transferable. It must be personally exercised by faith. When the news came in in verse 6 that the bridegroom was coming, in verse 7 it says, All the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go to the dealers and buy oil for yourselves. When the foolish virgins realized they didn't have enough oil to trim their torches, they immediately appealed to these other wise virgins who had brought oil with them. Once they realized the gravity of the situation, they immediately tried to lean on the good graces of others. But the wise virgins wisely understood not only the necessity of them being personally spiritually prepared, they also knew that they could not grant the request of these foolish ladies. And if, you, if you're honest, when you first read this parable, and you, you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on here, at first reading, the response of the wise virgins to the foolish virgins seems rather harsh, doesn't it? It just seems, it just seems like the polite thing to do. If, if you've got oil and somebody else doesn't, that you would share. I mean, aren't we all taught as little children the importance of sharing? And so is Jesus somehow telling us in this parable that when it comes to the gospel, we should be selfish? No, he's not advocating selfishness here. He's pointing us out to a bigger principle, which is this. That if somehow or another the wise virgins were able to share their oil with the foolish virgins, there wouldn't have been enough for any of them to end up making it to the feast. That doesn't mean that somehow or another we run out of enough faith to save us. It means that the life of faith is not transferable from one person to another. If the oil represents your personal preparation... For the gospel, 
Your preparation for the gospel does not transfer to someone else. If the oil represents belief in the gospel, repentance of sin, and faith in Jesus, then what Jesus is telling us here is that we must do those things for ourselves because nobody else can repent of our sins and nobody else can give us sufficient faith to believe the gospel. If the life of Christ was transferable, that would make evangelism so much easier, wouldn't it? But it's not. And far too many cultural Christians are trusting in a spiritual pedigree to get them in heaven instead of trusting in faith in Jesus Christ. Far too many cultural Christians are trusting in the fact that they were raised in a Christian home, that their parents are good Christian people, that their granddaddy was a preacher or their daddy was a deacon or their mama was a Sunday school teacher. And when you talk to cultural Christians about the gospel and you begin to talk to them about their need for Christ, they all seem to point back to where they grew up, where they went to church, what their mama does, what their daddy does in the church. Some are trusting that their spouse is a good Christian man or woman, but the principle of this parable is that eternal life is not transferable and that you cannot get into heaven through someone else's faith. And we must also remember this for those of us who are believers when it comes to our families. For those of us who have truly trusted in Christ, we must remember that our spouse and our parents and our children need the gospel for salvation just as much as we do. And sometimes one of the hardest things as a a Christian parent is to understand that that while you want your children to believe the gospel, you cannot give them the faith to trust. And that the hardest mission field to win for Christ is not some bush in Africa, but oftentimes inside the walls of our own home. Please understand that eternal life in Jesus Christ is not transferable. It must be personally exercised by faith. No one else can give you the faith to save you. You must exercise that yourself. Second takeaway is that we should not confuse Christ's delay as a guarantee of more time. We should not confuse Christ's delay in coming as a guarantee of more time. Verse 10 says, When they were going out to buy the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, the five wise virgins, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The parable purposefully doesn't tell us why the bridegroom was delayed because we don't need to know those reasons. What we do know is that he was coming, but he didn't come as soon as everyone expected. And in the meantime, all of those waiting for his return got distracted. The point of this parable is crucial for us to understand in the church today. These ten women represent those in the church who profess connection to Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then those who are wise and have tr- there are those in the church who are wise and have trusted in Jesus Christ and the gospel for salvation, and there are those in the church who are foolish who have not done so yet. And we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus is returning. As a matter of fact, every generation in the church has lived for 2,000 years with the knowledge and the belief that Jesus Christ could return in their generation. For 2,000 years, the, the, the church has looked to these scriptures and looked to the sky and awaited the inevitable return of Jesus Christ, but He hasn't returned yet. 
And I think if we went back and talked to some of those first, second, third generation Christians and we were to tell them that return of Christ was going to take more than 2,000 years before he came back, I think many of them would not have believed it would have taken that long. In the meantime, many in our world have come to think that this long delay in the return of Christ means that we have plenty of time later on to make spiritual preparations. For many of us, we've grown up with this idea that Jesus could return at any moment, but he hasn't done so for 2,000 years. So that means I've got plenty of time. When I was a young man, I used to think that I had plenty of time to deal with the things of God later. I had too many other things that took priority at that moment. And millions of people in our day have heard the gospel. They've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, but they have put off their responsibility to to personally act upon it later so that they can enjoy the fruits of this life now. And so they spend their lives in the temporal because there are vacations to enjoy and jobs to work and families to raise and ball games to play and coach and parties to host. And these things are what occupy our immediate urgency right now. And just like these foolish virgins, millions are so busy with the immediate that they haven't made proper plans for the imminent and the eternal. If I could say anything to you today, I would say do not sacrifice the imminent in pursuit of the immediate. And don't fall victim for the lie that matters of eternity can wait until tomorrow. James said in James chapter 4, today or tomorrow, we'll, we, some people will say, we'll go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. James says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them, which includes postponing belief in the gospel. Don't fall victim to the lie that today and tomorrow I've got all these things I've got to get done and I've got plenty of time to deal with Jesus later. I had a friend in college named Johnny. She was a young lady who worked with me for a season at a sporting goods store that I worked at. Johnny and I used to have conversations about Christ because at that time God had called me in the ministry and I was really struggling as a young man with my own personal walk with Christ and where I was and I worked around a whole bunch of people that weren't Christians but Johnny professed to have belief in Jesus Christ. She had come to the point in her life where she wanted to enjoy her life more than she enjoyed the things of God. We would talk about church and we would talk about spiritual matters and I would implore and plead with her to, to do certain things, and she would say, you know what, i got plenty of time for that right now. I just want to be young. I just want to have fun. Johnny got distracted by the temporal, and she delayed her, her, her personal responsibility for eternal matters until later because she had begun to believe that there was plenty of time to deal with that later. I remember when I showed up at work one Sunday and opened up the doors of the sporting goods store, and one of my coworkers came in and had tears in his eyes. And he told me that the night before, Johnny had been out at a party with some friends and she had left the party and on her way home from the party, she was driving her Camaro. She flipped the Camaro and was instantly killed. I don't know whether Johnny was a true believer in Jesus Christ or not. I never had the opportunity to have that conversation with her. But I do know that she was spending her life putting off the eternal in order to enjoy the temporal. 
You have a guarantee from Christ that the gospel is powerful enough to save you now and to change your life forever. That's the guarantee of the gospel. But you do not have a guarantee from Christ that you have plenty of time later to believe that message. Do not confuse the delay of Christ as a guarantee of more time. And the third takeaway that I see here is simply this. The right religious words are no substitute for personal connection to Jesus Christ. The right religious words are no substitute for personal connection to Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Bible says, The other virgins came to the, to the door and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. These words in verse 11 are chilling as these five young women yell out, Lord, Lord, open to us. It brings to mind an echo of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. Those are some of the most concerning words that Jesus ever spoke. When Jesus says there's going to be people who one day will come to him just like these young ladies and they will say, Lord, Lord, But Jesus will say, I don't know who you are. Jesus repeatedly warns us that on the day in which he returns, there will be many people who will cry out to his lordship. They will try to acknowledge with their mouths the lordship of Jesus Christ while they spent an entire life basically denying it. And they will appeal to things such as faithful church attendance, and good religious works and miracles that they were a part of. They will, they will appeal to mission trips that they took. They will appeal to, to good mission projects they engaged in in the church. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. I want you to think for a second about the scariest words that you've ever heard. What are the scariest words you've ever heard in your life? Maybe you heard the words... Your father and I are separating. Those are pretty scary words for a young boy or young girl. Maybe you heard the words, I don't love you anymore. Those are pretty scary words. I remember, I told you all the story of us being in Disney World a few years ago and losing John David, and I can remember those words when my wife said, I can't find our son, is he with you? Those were pretty scary words. I have your test results here. Let's sit down and let's talk about what I see on them. Those are pretty scary words. But while all of those are scary words, I don't think there are any words any scarier than the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, which says, I do not know you away from me. You may know, you may say with your mouth that you know who Jesus is, and Jesus still not know you. You may know the right religious facts about Jesus. You may believe that He is the Son of God, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross, that He rose from the grave, 
that He has ascended to heaven, that He sits at the right hand of the Father, and that one day He is returning bodily and victoriously. You may know all these things in your head and still not know Jesus. Because knowing Jesus means that you have a personal relationship with Him and that you've surrendered your life to Him by faith and trusting in what He has done to save you. The right religious words are no substitute for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't count that you sit on church pews and sing the songs on the screen and listen to sermons and can tell Bible stories if you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our religious resume or our head knowledge of biblical facts. We are saved by our personal surrender to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, Time is short and eternity is long. And if that is true, it is only reasonable that this short life be lived in the light of eternity. Because you do not know when the Lord Jesus will return, you must make the proper spiritual preparations now. Because ultimately, the life of Christ is not transferable from one person to another. Ultimately, we cannot confuse His, His delay as a guarantee of more time. We need to do business with Christ now. Because when he comes, the right religious words are not going to substitute for a lack of a personal relationship with Christ. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that every single time that I stand in a pulpit to preach the Word of God, one thought resonates in my mind, and that is that in an audience of hundreds of people sitting, there are those here today who have never made the proper spiritual preparations to meet Jesus. You believe He's coming back, but you've never truly trusted Him and surrendered your heart and life to Him. And one day He's going to come at a time that you don't expect. And at that time, it's going to be too late to go and find oil for your lamp. It's going to be too late to stand at the door and appeal to His Lordship. Because the only thing that's going to matter is have you surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you given your heart and life to Him? Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. If today you'd like to to trade in head knowledge of Jesus for heart knowledge, if today you'd like to trade in a set of biblical facts for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. So in just a moment as we sing, if you want to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come and receive the Lord Jesus. Talk to one of our decision counselors who will share with you plan of salvation and how you can know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't leave here today thinking, you know what, preacher, that's really good words and some of the things you said really resonated with me. I think I want to go home and ponder that and think about it. Do not think that the delay of Christ means you have plenty of time to do that later on. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Would you give your heart and life to Him today? Maybe you need to come today for some other reason. Maybe you need to come to pray for a loved one who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you know someone who professes faith in Jesus, but they're one of these five foolish virgins, and you just need to come today and pray that the Lord Jesus would open their heart and their mind to the gospel, that they would receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Maybe you need to do that. Whatever it is that you need to do, we want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God of infinite grace and mercy, and that, Father, you have... You have allowed the gospel to go forth in power. And that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Millions of people have believed in the gospel, but there are millions more who have not. And we pray that today, Father, 
you'd give us faith to believe. We pray for those who are struggling with their personal relationship with you, that you would call them to you and that you would help them to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus by faith as their Savior. Father, speak to us. Holy Spirit, breathe life into our dead hearts today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing the song and respond as the Lord Jesus leads you today.